You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras. Now, it's summertime, and that means it's time to start getting our trail cameras ready and our trail cameras out to start capturing pictures of velvet bucks. And our friends at Exodus are kicking things off with Velvet Fest. Now, what is Velvet Fest? Long story short, Velvet Fest is the opportunity for you to win a variety of different prizes just by purchasing Exodus Trail Cameras, one of the best trail cameras on the market. Now, until July 12th, when you purchase any trail camera, you will be automatically entered into a drawing to win a variety of prizes from companies like Wicked Tree Gear, Maven Rifle Scopes, Tethered Tree Saddles, and of course, Exodus Trail Cameras. Be sure to follow Exodus on Facebook and Instagram, and be sure to visit ExodusOutdoorGear.com for more information on Velvet Fest. All right, guys, welcome to another Land of Legacy Habitat Heroes podcast. Host here, Adam. Uh, Matt, Matt's over on the For Love of Land podcast, so if you want to hear him this week, go check that out. Uh, we've got the quail guys um, on this week to talk about a, a topic that we've discussed on every podcast we've done with them. They've mentioned it, but now we're devoting an entire podcast to it. Um, they key it up as usable space. We're going to define that and why you should care about it. Kyle, Frank, thanks for coming on. Uh, thanks, Adam. Yep, thanks for having us. Yeah, so uh, as you guys know, Kyle, Frank, if you haven't seen it, they are Upland Game Bird Specialist Consultants for Land and Legacy. So if you have any concerns, questions about your property and you want some information on that, maybe you want to have these guys out to your property, shoot an email to info at TV or just message us on social media. Kyle, we're going back. You've, we've, if you want to hear everybody's background, where they came from, go check out some of our earliest, earlier podcasts. You'll hear their history and where they came up and where they cut their teeth. School of Hard Knocks. But we're talking usable space. Let's hear you define usable space. So in the, well, in any species world, um, usable space is suitable habitat over the extent of time. Um, and the key, so in, in the quail or the upland bird world, it's more specifically the, defined as suitable herbaceous cover um, over the, the long period of time where, where a lot of mistakes are made on this definition though is people say, well, yeah, that's, you know, uh, a soybean field. Well, it's usable. They can use it right now. Right. I mean, it's, it's got a canopy of soybeans, but it's the time that people miss, miss out on. And also the suitable part, uh, and we'll get more into both of those ends of it. But um, it's different for for a variety of species, and I'm sure we'll go into that as well. But the, the easy definition is suitable permanent cover over the extent of the year for the maximum amount of time throughout the year. There you go, Frank. Did he miss anything? You got anything you want to add to that? No, he nailed it. Uh, the definition of, of usable space and and it's a it's a concept that was popularized and kind of written 
by Professor Fred Guthrie in his pub publication he did in 1997, where he he analyzed a whole stack of quail research from going back as far as he could go from the 1930s all the way up to the to the late 90s, and he analyzed dozens and dozens of quail research projects looking for um, techniques that were going to increase quail over the life of that project. And the only management that increased quail was the addition of usable space. So if there was no usable space and you added usable space, quail increased. If your usable space was already there and you increased maybe some brush control or you did some other kind of tweaking, then your quail really didn't respond because you didn't add usable space. And so that addition of suitable permanent cover is what is really um, driving this whole concept of usable space. And for quail, there's, there's, it's, it's a specific type of space that we can talk about. But yeah, I think um, Kyle d defined it well there, and it's, and it's one of those topics that has really has really in the quail world not been around that long. I mean, 1997 when the paper was written, so it's a concept that we're still really kind of grasping, I would say. So let's hear, when you say permanent cover, what does that look like for a, a, a bobwhite quail? Um, well, for bobwhite quail, we're looking at herbaceous cover primarily. So, so the bobwhites really need three things. They need herbaceous habitat or herbaceous cover that's not too tall or not too thick. So we're talking about grasses, clump-forming grasses, uh, not sod-forming, but colony-forming or clump-forming form, clump grasses like your native warm-season grasses with scattered herbaceous uh, or scattered forbs. So weedy cover is very, very important. Bare ground in those spaces between those grass clumps and between those, those forbs bare ground and they need shrubby cover so they need thickets they don't need tall trees but they need thickets that are anywhere from five to twelve foot tall have a have a pretty dense canopy overhead pretty uh pretty good stem density thick enough that quail can feel safe they use it for thermal cover and protection so those three aspects are, are what quail really need they need good or basis cover that's probably knee high or less they need bare ground in, intermixed within that in those interstitial spaces, and they need shrubby cover. Now, if you guys want to see a video version of this, Frank and Kyle have some videos on our YouTube channel, Land and Legacy, um, that you can check out. And Frank, I believe you talk all on usable space for about five minutes, and we give some references on what to look for with that. Um, Kyle, what are some of your, when, when defining that permanent cover, what are some of these main species? He mentioned a few, but give me a, a rundown of your top favorites, top three of of your permanent cover um, makeups. I guess well, is what well, I'm yeah. For. Uh, you know, in a perfect world, uh, there would be dozens and dozens of species. But yeah, yeah. I mean, some of our favorite three are going to be uh, little blue. That's where they're going to put nest although they'll use lots of other grass species but little blue is about perfect it doesn't get too tall doesn't get as thick as some other grasses um and ragweed would be um obviously uh, uh one of the top three uh, it attracts lots of bugs it produces good uh, seeds and and very 
um, high nutrition seeds. Um, so they're going to need that during the brood rearing phase. Um, and then it, if we're just talking herbaceous, I don't think it'd be any list of other plants at that point for number three, I guess. But, um, if I, if I was just saying any plant in general, and they even could jump to woody, then it would be wild plum. If I could only have three things out there, which would not be enough diversity, <laughs> but it would be little, little, little blue stem, ragweed, common ragweed, and wild plum. There you go. And we could probably grow some quail with those three species. It would yeah. not be ideal, but we could grow more quail with that than we could with soybeans and milo and a variety of other stuff. Yeah, and, and I think that's a great point, great segue into understanding, you know, the the difference. You listed out three main species, but um, there's a long list. Each, when you go in the shrubs, there's, I mean, I don't know if you guys seen it. We just, yeah. this week, we launched a podcast devoted to shrubs, and we talk about some of our favorites for each region in the United States. Um, or for a lot of the United States. I guess we didn't cover western shrubs. Um, but... Basically, we covered shrubs, so there's a long list of different species to include the sumacs and, and my gosh, the plums and the dogwoods, but uh, when it comes to really trying to maximize your usable space, define, paint the picture of of how these are laid out in the landscape. Uh, I think a lot of times in the deer world and a lot of our listeners are deer guys um we try to picture a whole 10 acres of shrubs over here on one part of the farm or one part of the field and a whole section of of native grass over here on this part of the property and then a whole section of forbs in this part maybe that be through a food plot or or through dormant season disking and trying to get a lot more forbs what does that look like for ideal um, habitat for upland birds, um, Kyle? Well, so the the better juxtaposition of all of these habitat types, the three things that Frank mentioned, which is the permanent herbaceous cover, the bare ground, and the, the thickets, the more ideal. So in a quail world, Unfortunately, we've managed a lot of times, both public and private lands, where we do have discrete different units. We say, well, there's the nesting cover over there. And literally, we have a 10-acre block of grass that hasn't been burned for a few. That's where they're supposed to nest. And then over here, we have an idle food plot or a, a weed patch, and that's where they're supposed to go raise their young. Well, their legs are a few inches long, so now they got to pack their kids, which are the size of bumblebees, you know, across the landscape, and they're supposed to know where this brood-rearing habitat is. Yeah. So that, unfortunately, that's how it's been managed, how it needs to be managed, and how our research is, has shown to be the most effective and how West Texas and West Oklahoma and the Southeast, you know, Southern Georgia are effective, is it's all uniform habitat. The The goal would be, you can have a nest and literally step out of the nest and start raising your brood right there because it's open. It has the bare ground. You're not in a unit that is thick, rank grass to have your nest. They don't need it to be thick, rank grass to have their nest. And you would have appropriate thickets every, you know, whatever the case be, 50 yards, 100 yards across the entire landscape. So 
any of the listeners that you know have ever been to the high plains of Texas, picture that landscape where it's literally this brush crumb scattered amongst grass and weed clumps. As far as you can see, that's usable space. As far as you can see, that's going to maximize quail. Um, the yeah. suit, that's where this whole, uh, the suitable part comes into the definition and we can expand on that here shortly. But oftentimes when we do discrete blocks, it's not necessarily suitable. It may be suitable for one portion for yep. one or two months of the nesting part, but then the rest of the year it's useless because it's too thick. Um, that's not okay. We need usable 12 months of the year. Worst case, we want it usable because maybe we burned a unit, right? There's going to be a few week period. It's not usable, but yep. worst case, it's got to be usable for even the, the units that we mess with got to be usable for 10 or 11 months or we're just minimizing the amount of quail we can have. So f- Frank, Kyle just explained kind of the landscape and what, what to shoot for. How do you, how does one continue to manage that? How can you take that landscape that's got herbaceous plants? It's got grasses, it's got woody shrubs or woody species out there dotted out across the landscape to where it is usable, but as time ticks, how do we continue to maximize the productiveness of that landscape? Well, the, the answer to that question really depends on a couple of things. It depends on where you are in space, so where you're located. So if you're located, say, in from eastern Kansas east, where we get a lot of rainfall, so we're talking you know, 40 inches plus rainfall, and you have pretty heavy soils, so you've got a, soils that are pretty heavy clay. Well, those uh, conditions are really prime for growing a lot of grass and growing it very quickly. So uh, we have to stay ahead of that, that grass growth. We have to stay ahead of succession. So we need to, we need to probably burn uh, at least half of our property every other year. So so burn half of it one year and burn half of it the other year. That would be probably the, the, the most ideal burn rotation in high rainfall climates with heavy soils. Um, if you've got cattle, then that's even, even better because then you can replace some of the fire with cattle because you're getting disturbance across the entire landscape. So if you are, say, from central Kansas west and you get a lot less rainfall, then your disturbance timing or your, the intervals between your disturbance are going to have to be reduced or, or, excuse me, lengthened because you have less rain. Also on sandy soils, soils that um, are a little less productive, they're sandy, they're sort of droughty, you can get away with burning on a, on a, on a more reduced frequency. You can burn maybe every three to four years instead of every other year. Just because your vegetation doesn't respond as quickly because of lack of rain and, and you know, drought of your soil. So it kind of depends on where you are in space. But, but the, if you've got the, all of those habitat conditions in place, the very best way to manage it is with grazing. But the second best would be with fire. And a combination of fire and grazing would be what we're finding on the quail study that we've done in Missouri. Is, is holding the most promise for being the most productive for raising bobwhites. Perfect. Kyle, touch on a little bit um, 
talking about grazing and fire, how do you create, what's the best way to create even more diversity um, through those tools? Um, you know, I, I think a lot of times people picture grassland fires being a dormant season fire um, during a certain time of the year and you do the same thing over and over and you really create almost uh, a monoculture of grass. Um, how would you, how would you maximize it with those disturbances? So, yeah, they're, you know, grazing and fire have a long history together, actually, <laughs> hundreds of thousands of years. It's a thing called pyric herbivory, where, and this, this works in Missouri, this works in Africa, this works in every continent in the United States, or in the world, and it has worked for every state in the United States. So animals, grazing animals, are attracted to regrowth after fire. It's just a fact. It just happens. And it's because it's more nutritional. So by utilizing fire, we can burn, if we're grazing and burning for quail or pheasant or grouse habitat, we wouldn't have to burn, even in our heavy soils and high rainfall, we wouldn't have to burn 50% of the landscape because we're going to get disturbance from cattle. So what we do is burn a third of it, break our, you know, Eh, maybe depends on the size of the area, but maybe you have six units. So we're going to burn two of the six units any given year. Um, burn a third of the landscape. Well, the cattle, and we know this from research we've done ourselves, and it's been done in Oklahoma. Several people have reported on this. The cattle spend two-thirds of their time in that one-third that was burned. But we give them access to the whole unit, the whole pasture, not just the burn unit. So they spend two-thirds of their time in there. They spend the other one-third in the remaining unburned area. So they, they make some trails in there. They do a little bit of feeding. They open it up. So that's also usable, even though it hasn't been burned as recently. But by grazing the, the burn unit a little heavier, the following year, it tends to be heavier on the forbs. It, the grasses, you know, get suffer a little bit um, over winter. Um, and so the forbs kind of get ahead head start and the next year that'll be the weedier more forby unit and then that burn rotation rotates across the landscape so after three years we've burned each unit in that grazing um, pasture or unit or section whatever we're doing and so that is rotated around so now we've created diversity within the entire system so it rotates we have different height structure heights structure diversity as well as plant diversity changes as this rotates across the landscape. And it's not only good for quail, this is natural community management. This is what you guys preach for quail. This is working with nature, working with what was there. Um, it's We've got data that shows it's good for uh, this whole suite of grassland birds. It's good for several different kinds of insects. It's good for, because this mimics what happened historically. Fire went across the, the plains and the prairies and the bison followed they followed the fire along so it's it's pretty simple yet <laughs> um, hasn't been accepted widely until until recent times perfect yeah it's that's it you, you said a lot of nuggets right there working with nature not against it replicating nature um, and really just taking what we've can look pack and history and say oh this is exactly the way nature designed it there's probably a reason it was designed this way and that's so we can maximize uh, the landscape and 
for landowners out there listening, they're explaining a, an opportunity here to where if you are an upland bird guy, but at the same time, I can't think of anyone, any landowner who doesn't care to try to find a way to make money off the landscape. Here's a system to where you can improve the habitat, but at the same time use a tool that can put money in your pocket, and that's through uh, through grazing with cattle. And uh, I, I, that's one of the biggest reasons why I love this, this uh, listening to you guys talk about this, because it's exactly what, it's a it's a new message. Uh, you know, you, we, we've talked in this 30-minute podcast or 20-minute podcast so far about old systems and things that are needing to change, and this is one of those where, once again, cattle can be used to benefit wildlife because long before cattle were here, there was bison here, and they were definitely helping the landscape. So um, one thing I want to talk about real quick um, before it slips my mind is anybody listens to this podcast knows that uh, adult ADHD is is a huge problem um, for, for a host on this podcast. I won't name any names. Um, but I want to talk Frank or Kyle, whichever one of you guys uh, really feels the, the need, or you probably both have input on this. But we're, when we're talking linear space or usable space, sorry, and we're talking about look at some of the, the native ecosystems, native landscapes, and we're talking shrubby, woody component. Define the, the reasoning for this whole linear planting of shrubs versus natural, circular more of a blocky type um, landscape of shrubs. Uh, Frank, why don't you lead into that? Well, okay. Um, so let's let's think about this a couple of different ways. So let's first think of it from a, a landowner perspective. Um, if you've got a fence, you're building your fence in a, in a straight straight row or straight line. Yeah. And over time, a lot of times, shrubs will fill into that will fill into that fence that you've built because you, it's hard to, to, to graze under that fence. It's hard to disturb it. You know, to, you know sometimes you neglect it and, and shrubs grow up. So they kind of grow uh, a linearly or linear fashion. And so if you're quail hunting and that's the only shrubs you have around, a lot of times that's where you find quail. And you think, okay, well, this is pretty good habitat. These linear, these linear rows are pretty good habitat. Also, historically, when people put in... Uh, living fences. So whether it was the exotic multiflora rose, which was is pretty good quail, co- pretty good quail cover in terms of, of shrubby cover for for a time, or um, they put in a living fence of, of hedge or you know, boat arc trees or, or hedge trees. Those p- kind of planted in a linear fashion. So it's kind of developed on the landscape, and I think that's sort of just a function of how we manage, just sort of in this in this linear fashion. And I know on public land, or when 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 we, you know, I know that when I've done some shrub plantings in the past, it's a lot easier to jump on the tractor or jump on the tree planter and just say, "Hey, go to the end of the field, and we'll just start dro- dropping shrubs in the furrow," instead of you know say, "Hey, let's make a let's make a, a circular f- formation. Let's do this, you know, across the field. It's harder work. It you, it just takes more time, and it's convenient." So I think it's a function of all those, and, and I'm on public lands that I've managed. I know I'm guilty of that because of the convenience factor, and shouldn't be thinking in terms of convenience. Should be thinking of what's best. But 
I think those are the reasons that we that we kind of see these linear plantings of shrubs, whether they're plantings that we've planted or they've come in naturally, kind of how we've got our mind because that's what we're used to seeing on the landscape. That's what we're used to hunting. I know I've hunted a lot of linear hedgerows in Kansas and found quail, and so you just kind of get that search image in your mind, and that's sort of how we do it. Mm. Kyle, you got anything you want to add to that? Well, yeah, so he's exactly right, and part of it is a development over time, mostly from those living hedgerows, and then, but then that gets, it is way easier to hunt, certainly, and you can push a cutty on down the fence row, right, and keep keep working on singles. But we go back to, it wasn't natural, right? That, that wasn't how the landscape was laid out historically. There was scattered clumps across the landscape. But I'll take it a step further. So oftentimes, this goes back to the, my comment earlier about suitable. So oftentimes, this is where we make the mistake. So let's picture in our minds, we have a 160-acre field, okay? And let's say this is a CRP field, for argument's sake. So this whole, let's say it's even well-managed CRP. Like, you know, it's not super thick rank uh, that the quail can't hardly live in it. Let's say they're doing theirs. They're strip disc and they're they've got it parceled out and they're burning parts of this every year. I mean, this is the cat's meow for for a CRP field. But most of them, and you can picture this in your mind, have a road on one side or maybe two sides if it's a 160, and then it's going to have a hedgerow or a, let's say it's a shrub row. Let's let's say it's even the proper height. Let's say it's a short hedgerow. Um, all the way down the other two sides, right? So it's a half mile to the inside corner and then a half mile back out to the road. Well, in a quail's world, that's fine, and they're going to use that, but there, we have 160-acre CRP field. We've only made um, that, that edge that's near that shrubby cover, that shrubby row that goes for, you know, a mile L, um, they have to have that shrubby cover scattered across that whole CRP field for the entire CRP field to be suitable year-round. So now we've just taken 160 acres and made only 30, 40, 50 acres of it usable year-round. So we cannot maximize quail with that type of system. We have to have the shrubby cover well distributed across that, that field within flying distance for quail. And that's where we make a lot of mistakes, both publicly and privately managed. Well, I've got my woody cover over here. Well, it needs to be over here and over there and in between, and it's got to be accessible both summertime for cooling and, and of course, wintertime for escape cover. Perfect. I definitely think uh, we've laughed about it and we've said it a lot, but um, that, I think, when it gets into quail management, maybe I'm basing this all on this is just my own assumption but that's where I think a line is quickly drawn between productive farming um, commercial farming whatever it is for um, cattle and then going into upland bird management is there's a quick line that gets drawn in I'm all for quail until I start letting until brush starts growing up in my fields and uh and I think that's that's something that man, it's just yeah. Sumac gets a bad rap. A lot of the plums get a bad rap. I mean, in the real estate world, um, 
I've walked in many properties where I see old fields that are starting to grow up in, uh, in plums and different things. And I'm like, oh, man, this looks really bucky. Or it looks like there could be some quail around here. And then I talk to another agent who maybe is focused strictly on cattle, and they say, well, the first thing I'd do is, is get the bush hog out and mow down that brush. And it's like that, yeah. that that's really yeah. – even uh, Aldo Leopold talked about it at Sand County Almanac about the, the word brush and uh and how quickly yeah. how quickly it has a negative connotation in this society uh and still i mean that was way back but still to this day brush does not have a very good <laughs> a very good uh picture in mind for people but uh, i think no, that it, it, go ahead you're right adam and, and the term brush is is got and it may be in how we sell this going forward is you know people like you said have a negative connotation to brush and we see that a lot is, is folks just want to get that brush out of their field. There's no place for it. And it looks bad. And, yeah. and a lot of people want to have nice looking fields and properties. And I understand that, but you know, maybe we should be thinking in terms of shrubs um, and, and sort of, you know, kind of how we do forbs and weeds. Well, that's a weed or is it a forb? The same thing. It's just connotation, I think. And, we sell these things, but absolutely, gonna, shrubs are critical, not just for quail, but a variety of species. And they were a huge part of our landscape. They were, they were, they were a part of our prairies, even. And even, we've managed the shrubs right out of our prairies because they don't look good. Shrubs shouldn't right. be in prairies. They're, you know, they could turn right. into a tree if we don't burn it. So yeah, that's right. That's it's right. Got a negative connotation. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Uh, and anybody who's ever read any of the journals, the exploration out west or Lewis and Clark journals is probably the most famous. And you, if you listen to the audiobook, read their journals, you're going to see them talk a lot about shrubs and um, choke cherries and these plums. My goodness, they ate a lot of plums going up the Missouri River. And today, I, I would be curious. It's a lifelong goal of mine, dream probably more than anything, not a goal, but I would love to retrace their steps and just see what what the the amount of plums or uh, and shrubs you find on the landscape. I bet it would not compare, um, and that's definitely a thing that that uh, you know you mentioned something. I and we've said it before, and I've heard it talked a little bit on other podcasts. But um, hunting in general has a really bad public relations uh, issue to where we don't know how to. Um, share our story with the public. So I'm going to coin a phrase. Maybe it's already been used, but I haven't heard it. But let's maybe we'll start calling them pollinator shrubs, um, just because of the amount of people that are on board with pollinators. Um, and then maybe we can get shrubs. <laughs> shrubs can piggyback on that, and and really maybe there'll there be a go. lot more people sinking shrubs in the ground. Yep. There you go. They all bloom. They all going to attract a pollinator of some kind. That's right. Quail food in our world, but hey, whatever sells. <laughs> <laughs> whatever yeah. sells. The yeah. elderberries around here are, are really blooming right now, full of pollinators, and that'll eventually be good quail cover and good quail shrubs. So that's right. That's yeah. how we and, package it. And and quail eat a bunch of those insects too. They're not. They're not particular. They eat wasps. They eat little bees. They eat flies. <laughs> They'll eat about anything. So. Yep good for everybody a lot of ants too right oh yeah about anything yeah. not, their list their food list is about as big as a raccoon's <laughs> <laughs> oh man you know I, and i get asked that a lot when when we start talking about pollinators people ask me well let 
what insects? I mean, I know there's probably monarchs and the honeybee is like the two that people picture with pollinators. And uh, then they go into, you know, but, but what are the bad insects that I'm going to bring in with this? And, and really with an with a quail, there's not really a bad insect, I guess. They'll eat about anything that, that's got a bunch of legs. Um, what are some of the, you know, uh, going back, um, trying to keep this back on the upland side of management, what are some of the things that to do, we've touched on a little bit, but I want to circle back and make sure we didn't miss anything, to maximize usable space? Do you guys feel like you covered that pretty well? I, I just want a clear understanding on how I can take my land and make sure I maximize. And I'm, I've got a direction to go for the whitetail guys, so listen up once they're finished talking. But there's a reason why I'm asking you guys this again. Let, let me touch on something, uh, two things here. So maximizing usable space is would be the ultimate goal if you want to, the maximum number of cubbies. Now, a lot of properties are going to be working farms, right? So we don't want to scare away the you know, Nebraska row crop guy, he can have quail and he needs to maximize the usable usability of the quail habitat that he installs, but it's not going to be 100% usable space across his 3000 acre row crop farm or else he will no longer be row cropping. Right. right. (laughs) He can't make it look like West Texas and still be row cropping and still own the ground. Yeah. (laughs) Right. But, he can still grow quail. You just, you know, that if you're only going to put a quarter of your acres into usable space, then you can only have 25% of the the quail that you could have if you put 100% of your property, right? I mean, it's all right. relative. But uh, the maximization of it goes to as much um, permanent cover as we could install that has all those components that Frank talked about. And then the last tidbit of that so it has the the grass the forbs um that's one combined unit and then the bare ground and and the thickets that are appropriately spaced across the landscape the suitability is the big kicker we have piles and piles of landowners that have crp we have piles and piles of acres of public land that has open grass with forbs and and scattered thickets but the suitability is the problem because it has not been disturbed enough if it's in these high rainfall countries. So it's too thick oftentimes. So even though it's there, the components are there, The bare, I guess the components aren't, because the bare ground is the missing thing because it hasn't been disturbed enough. So the suitability, the usability of that usable space is the kicker. And we, from here east, have done a poor job as managers of disturbing the landscape enough to maintain that bare ground between plants so little bitty chicks can move around. Right. And let me add some stuff there. You know, we've, we've long, and this is where, this is where researchers and managers, managers in particular have to always be asking questions and, and diving in to, to, to the latest science to, to try to, to try to get these answers. We long operated on this idea that if we burned every third year or once every three years, that we were probably doing the right thing. That was the amount of disturbance that we needed. But our quail research is showing that that much past 12 months idle, that our quail are, are abandoning that. Our, our radio-collared birds don't use it. So 
we've had to change. I know Kyle and I have had to change our way of thinking. And, and instead of getting off this one every three years, we're going to have to, we're really going to have to up our disturbance. And that's where, that's where science has, has really informed that um, very well. And, and also touch on what Kyle said about suitability. If you've got, when you've got a piece of land, and, I, and I'm sure you guys talk to the, talk to your deer and turkey folks about this, Adam, is being strategic in your land management is critical. So if you want to pull off a burn and you want to burn half your acres or half of your, your quail management, you need to be very strategic of when you want to burn it, right? So that is an, that's an important decision to make. Just Don't just go out and say, well, conditions are good. Let's go burn it today. And it could be maybe the, the worst time for your, for your particular piece of property to be burned. So you got to have a strategic plan. Um, don't just do the management to be doing it. You've got to have some, some, some strategy behind it, I think, is very, very key, too. Awesome. That's definitely some interesting points. Um, I, I'm going to go back, to, or I'm going to tell a short story here from a, a landowner that I know. Uh, I'm not sure. I know you guys have definitely shared uh, presentations or sh presented, and this guy's been in the audience. But I have a dear friend who's a, a big and rotational grazing, really looks at trying to do mob grazing, if you will, high stocking rates short-term grazing, and then long rest periods. Lots of disturbance and then left idle for resting. And I talked to him on the phone, I guess, earlier today. And his he said he's been seeing several several uh, hen quail with several chicks. Um, and But he's noticing a trend that they're, that they're more on his cool season pastures than they are anywhere else on the property, specifically where he has natives um, and and other types of pastures. But I followed up with the question, and I said, well, where are your cows at right now? And, and his cows are just starting that transition um, and, and will be uh, to going, and, and he's adding more natives in the future, native warm seasons. But right now, he's more of a, a heavy, cool season-dominated farm and it's not your typical like just 90 percent one grass but he's got chicories and plantains um he loves giant ragweed in his pastures he's got alfalfa he's got clovers and timothy and orchard grass and fescue smooth brome all kinds of different things out there um, he does something else a little interesting is he leaves his um honey locust trees which Basically, you ask anybody, I don't know if there's anybody in this country that really loves honey locust trees, but he leaves his until they get over 10 feet tall, and then he can pull them out with his with his skid steer. Uh, but there's a lot of just scattered shrubby-type honey locusts, um, which is, oddly enough, where a lot of the birds sit and sing out on his pastures. So he's got a high-diverse pasture, but once again, it's, it's mostly all non-native cool seasons. Um, but I guess here's my question, and I don't know if there is an answer, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Um, would you feel like, and based on that and my observations, I almost feel like disturbance sometimes is even more important than species. Would you guys, and you can, it's fine to disagree with this, but um, I've noticed uh. to, in me, I, in my observations with pasture and rotational grazing, is like, 
I've seen some really, really good-looking warm-season stands, but if there's no disturbance, it gets really rank. And then I've seen some really grazed, not overgrazed, but um, cool-season pastures that are getting rotated and seeing a more high abundance of or more abundant quail numbers. Absolutely. If you take, a, let's say, a switchgrass, Indian grass, big blue stem, CRP field, and yes. don't disturb it, that's that's pretty much as worthless for quail as a fescue CRP field. It doesn't wow. matter. You've got to have disturbance. So, we, especially, again, east of Kansas, that we're too high of rainfall. We yeah. have to have disturbance. It gets too thick. Poor little quail has legs that are two inches long. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they just can't wade through that garbage. Yes. Wow, that's a very interesting well, point that... you just made there, Kyle. And Frank, I I, yeah. I know you got something else to add, but uh, we'll get to so you're saying that, you know, you get these tall grasses. And I think anybody who's gone west knows that a lot of that native landscape out in that more arid climate uh is more dominated by a lot of shorter grasses like the little blue stem and split beard blue stem and uh then you go into buffalo grass uh, you don't get as many of those landscapes filled with the tall grasses like you might find in northern missouri or iowa um so you're basically in your observations and landowners listen up but you're finding out that the the tall grasses that deer hunters love left undisturbed are almost worthless to upland upland birds specifically like bobwhite quail yes wow the, the very edges along that hedgerow they're going to use because it's going to be thinner right the yep. trees are going to that's the only place you're going to find the middle of that field most of the 75 percent of the the rest of that field is going to be wasted space for quail if it's not disturbed and pheasants a little different you know dead of winter yeah, there's going to be times that pheasants are going to pile in there. But again, yeah. suitability over time. Can they effectively raise chicks in there? No. Even pheasants, those are going to be birds coming in from everywhere around to pile in there because you're way up in South Dakota and have three foot of snow, right? Yep. Well, uh, <laughs> a disturbed warm season grass CRP field is also going to be full of pheasants when the snow comes. It doesn't have to be so rank they can't raise any broods in it. Wow. That's 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 quite the statement right there. I hope everybody caught it. For, uh, Frank, you had something you wanted to add there. Yeah, I was just going to add that, you know, you, you tell that story of, of of the landowner that you know, and you ask, you know, is, it, is the species – is it species driven or is it maybe disturbance driven? And if you think about the Bob White, they they existed from the East Coast all the way to, to Eastern Colorado, and then from Northern, well, actually from Southern Wisconsin at one time, all the way down into Central America. So they are, a, uh, Bob White and one from another are extremely, extremely adaptable bird in terms of the, the species of plants that they, and the landscapes that they can use. So, the South Georgia landscape is far different than the West Texas landscape, uh, but the keys are they have herbaceous cover that's not too tall, not too thick because of disturbance or because of lack of rainfall. Species are different, and the species of forbs that they feed on, the species of insects that they uh, are feeding on, species of shrubs that they're using for cover are different. 
but they all have the same structure. They all function pretty similar, and where disturbance is critical in the in the in the east, then they are disturbed very frequently. So um, disturbance is is super important. Um, so some good some good hatches of bobwhite quail can be had on well managed cool season pastures if there's good diversity and, and, and good enough residual cover for them to put a nest in um, and, and can be better in some cases in a lot of cases and the tall thick rank grass that Kyle talked about and I think as managers we've, we've fallen into that idea that a hey, tall native grasses are the way to go um, for, for management and they're pretty good for the first two or three years and then they drop off pretty quickly unless you do something about it so um, quail are adaptable in terms of they can use a lot of different species but they have got to have disturbance anywhere where there's a significant rainfall. Hmm. That's that's wonderful stuff. All right, we've got about 10 minutes left. I think that's about right. Actually, no. But we're going to play a little another when we close out this podcast. So we've got seven minutes or 10 minutes. Um, let's picture I've called you guys up, and I've just closed, and I've purchased um, – hundred acre crop field but I want to turn that into a very hot area for and I know we talk about you need a lot more you you don't want to create islands but uh, let's just say I'm already in an area that's in Kansas there's already resident birds but I want to create the zone the the absolute perfect scenario for as many birds as I can hold on that hundred acre field. Right now, it's been all plowed up and bare dirt, and now I've closed on it. Now I'm trying to convert that to a productive landscape for upland birds. Walk me through, Kyle. Give me some of your first thoughts on how to create that. First thing I'm going to do is install. Um, as high diversity planning as, as I can, as my budget will allow, right? Yep. Um, if I can afford a hundred species mix, <laughs> that's great. Realistically, most people aren't going to go down that road, but, but even a 20 species mix. So I'm going to plant a high diversity mix of, you know, a pollinator mix, the buzzword stuff mm-hmm. um, with a, with a little bit of grass in it. I'm going to have no more than two or three species of grass. A lot of the government programs will call for five, six, seven pounds of grass per acre. We're not even going to come close to that because stuff gets too thick unless we're out on the way western Kansas here. But if we're somewhere in the, you know, central to eastern Kansas, I'm I only want a, a pound or two of grass maximum in this in this mix, and the rest is going to be forbs. Um, several of those forbs are going to be legumes. I want um, those are good for attracting bugs, but also, uh, you know, good seed producers and produce big seeds, um, partridge pea, things like that. And some of those are, are very reasonable priced as well. So we can add lots of those kind of things and, and have more diversity. But the higher diversity we can plant, the more bugs we're going to attract. There'll be just enough grass to nest in, but we, we're basically planting this whole thing to brood cover with just enough nest. just enough grass that they can make nests out in it and then the the last component is is the shrubs we're going to scatter shrub plantings across the whole 
place flying distance apart. Perfect. I think that's definitely, so you basically have now cleaned the slate. We went from tilled ground to a high diverse mix. That's your initial game plan. You you planted yep. that high forb count with some grasses. And a pollinator yep. blends is, is something a lot of people do, but let's just say money is not an option here. Uh, I won the lottery and I'm buying a quail farm. Um, and so we planted this high diverse mix. Frank, what, what, what next steps would you do? Well, he, he kind of touched on the shrubs, but once I had my diversity, my high diverse mix on the ground, I would start planting some shrubs. And, and so the shrubs are, are, are slow growing. And that's one of the, that's one of the, the negative things about shrubs, especially as you get further west, they're going to be a little slower in establishing yep. before they're really suitable for shrubby cover for uh, thermal protection and, and protection from predators and escape. So some of the things that, that I've been known to do is in a, in a field that we lack shrubby cover, but we've planted it, we're ready for it to come on, but I'll kind of hasten that by cutting down some trees and dragging them out. Uh, down tree structures are called. They, they serve as temporary escape cover, so I would scatter a few of those throughout the field. I don't make them big. I usually take three trees at the most, three to four trees, so we're talking taller trees, so 20 to 30 foot tall trees, cut them down, and I loosely pile them. Don't cram them in there because you're just making homes for skunks and, and possums. But loosely pile them, strategically located throughout the field, and what happens is it provides some instant escape cover. The birds can kind of come in, the songbirds. They can deposit seed, and you can get some other shrubs growing there. But that just buys me some time until my shrubs really get established. Um, because quail absolutely have to have that shrubby cover. It's, you might raise them in your field, but if you don't have the shrubby cover for, uh, for winter protection, then, you know, you're, there's not going to be any birds around there for you to hunt. So you need to have some of that. So those are the things that I would do to get my shrubby cover going. And then at that point, you need to have a plan for disturbance, whether you put a fence around it and some water source and you graze it, or you come up with a burning strategy that's going to, uh, that's going to work. You've got to have some kind of plan for management because you simply just can't walk away from it and come back in November and hunt. It just won't work. Hmm. Uh, that brings up an interesting point. Uh, we're going away from we're going away from uh, from the bare ground planting and a blank canvas. But if you're cutting, let's just say you're doing a glade restoration. I get this question a lot. I'm doing a glade restoration, or I'm going in and I'm cutting a heavy amount of of trees. Should I push those together and pile them up, or should I just let them lay and let them break down as I continue to burn? What would you guys say? Well, I would argue it depends on what species we're cutting yep. and what our ultimate goal is. So yep. cedars on a glade, um, I mean, if if that's the example, cedars on a glade, because if I leave them scattered around, my experience is um, burns the limbs and needles off, but that heartwood turns petrifies after a burn or two. <laughs> And yep. it doesn't decay. It lays there for years and years and years. Now it's extra time and it's extra work. But um, if there's not, if I'm concerned about some overstory trees, maybe some old post oaks around the edge of this that I don't want to, 
kill, I got to be careful about where I'm piling stuff. But if I want stuff completely consumed, if I'm doing any tree work and I want it burned and I can afford to pile it, I'm going to pile it and pile it tight and we're going to burn it soon in the next 12 months. I'm not going to leave it laying there so it turns into a you're going awesome to leave those needles on it so it burns hot and it makes sure it burns up all the yep. way. Yep. But if I'm doing that, you know, in a woodland restoration setting, I got to be careful where I'm yep. going to put those because I'm going to burn every tree. I'm going to kill overstory trees. So yep. it, it just really depends on the situation. Gotcha. So for me. Yeah. Cool stuff. You guys got anything else to add? Now, we've talked about you've taken plowed field, you planted high-diverse mix of forbs and grasses, and then you turn plant the shrubs. How are you planting the shrubs on that landscape? Well, I would, I would learn from my mistakes and not plant them in a linear fashion. I would go out and, and, and plant them in a, in a thicket. I mean, that's what you're trying to get. Yeah. Um, and if you do this with some cost share, so you can use some government um, programs to get cost share to, to do some of this stuff, there will be some requirements. So, for instance, I know on some government cost share, you have to have a 1,500-square-foot thicket. Uh, so you got to plant your shrubs in a 1,500-square-foot. That's awful big for quail. Quail don't need anything that big. I wouldn't – but to meet the government requirements, that's what you got to do. And so – you expect some mortality, so I think that's why they make them a little bigger than what needed, just to account for that mortality. But, but you know, thickets for for use for quail, the size of two pickup beds, perfect. The size of a pickup bed is good. So, um, we would kind of just kind of look on the on the air on this an aerial photo, kind of look for maybe high spots. Don't necessarily put them in low spots. You kind of want to keep them up for for keep them out of the wet spots. And, and for areas where, where snow may drift, but kind of put them out there in, in an arrangement that's scattered throughout there, maybe every 70 to 100 yards across your property in clump in a clump fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, stay avoid avoid anything linear. When what we've learned, a lot of things that we've learned in our Missouri research is some sort of linear linear features on the landscape are magnets for predators. They, they will hunt linear features. Just like we as hunters will hunt a linear feature, um, predators will do the same thing. And so if we are, are avoiding putting linear features out there, we're confounding the hunting of all these predators. may confound our hunting as, as human predators a little bit, but we'll sure have more quail that, at the end of it. Mm. And then once you've got your shrubs established – then you're going to look at adding your disturbance. You're going to try to incorporate your grazing, try to incorporate your uh, your fire program, and uh, you're off to the races. Unless I'm, unless you guys yeah. got anything else to add. You know that new planting is going to be great, depending on where you're at. For even in Missouri, you won't have to disturb it probably for three or four years. It'll be great. Yeah. But then it's going to finally get a little too thick, and that's when we got to start. We got to have a disturbance plan ahead of time. Perfect. Further west, may not have to do that first disturbance till year five, six, seven. Just depends. Oh, hmm. wonderful. You know, another thing that I'll add is Kyle and I have, have done this a long time. We've, we've taken our lops on the head from quail management over time. And and so we, we know how to build these properties from, as, we just, as we've just talked about, from a blank slate and, and, and going forward. But we also know 
based on research and based on experience, how to take properties that you, you don't, you aren't going to start from a blank crop field, but how do your crop properties for what you've got, maybe you've got old pasture, maybe you've got existing CRP or, or, or what, what have you, we can, you know, we've got the experience and the research knowledge to, to not only maximize quail on a blank slate, but, but also promote and maximize quail on properties where you're, where you're, vegetation is pretty much there and we're just working from from what we got yeah absolutely and and a lot of times that's really what it comes down to you're you're dealing more with a with a property that's already got some of that stuff going on but they're trying to figure out what the missing part is and that's where you guys can come in to address that so if you guys are interested in um, hiring kyle and frank uh, to come consult on your property shoot us an email info atlantalegacy.tv or just shoot us a message on our social media cha uh, channels. Um, you guys got any quick thoughts to close it out? No, I don't. Usable space is the, the key. There you go. Heard it from the man himself. Frank? No, I, I appreciate you um, having this podcast dedicated to usable space. It's, it's, it's important. Like Kyle said, it's the key to quail management, and it's it's – that's the, the fundamental starting point. It's it's critical that we talk about it. So thanks, thanks Adam, for putting this together. Yeah, I, I definitely, you know, these last two, between this podcast and then last week's shrub, I think I think people are going to um, definitely be like, okay, fellas, we get it. We're planting shrubs this year instead of fruit trees. I get it. <laughs> Great. <laughs> yeah, Great. for sure. All right, guys, appreciate you coming on. We'll catch you guys next week. All right, thank you. Yeah.